Welcome to Live from Bar Save. This is Chad. And today, as promised, we have a special guest. We have Josh Harrison, the line editor from EarthDawn. Hi, Josh. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being on the show today. Hey, thanks for having me back. Apparently, I didn't like freak you out too much the last time. <laughs> I don't know. Were you trying to? Or uh, no? Is that a response you normally? It's get just that's just normally like, you know. <laughs> well, I need to do the disclaimer so that everyone knows that nothing you say is official, uh, officially coming from FASA. Does that apply to you or just to me? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. EarthDawn is a registered trademark of FASA Corporation. Any use of FASA Corporation's trademarks or copyrighted material is not intended as a challenge to those trademarks or copyrights. This is a fan work, and unless explicitly noted, material it contains is not or approved or endorsed by FASA Corporation. Okay. So don't take anything Josh says seriously. Yeah. Well, that's probably a good idea in general anyway, disclaimer <laughs> or no. <laughs> Well, we really appreciate you coming on today. Uh, there's a lot of stuff going on with FASA to talk about. The um, I just got the Earthdawn Companion. I was a little behind the curve on that. It's been out for a while, but I uh, just downloaded it about a week ago. And um, I'm really, really liking what I'm seeing there. Uh, can can you tell us a little more about that book and what it brings to Earthdawn and who should buy it? Uh, which would be everyone, right? I'm assuming. Well, yeah, everyone. Even people that don't play Earthdawn should buy it or just because we want their money so and... that we can continue to do stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, the so the companion is a combination player and game master book. Um, there is stuff. It's divided uh, roughly equally between material suitable for players and for game masters. Um, the sort of first half of the book focuses on the player side. It um, gives the circles nine through 15 of the various disciplines, along with the rules for all of the talents and stuff that they get. It introduces uh, the talent knacks um, mechanic, which is something that's existed since first edition, but finally bringing it into fourth. Um, pardon the noise of vehicles going by outside. Um, it... Um, also uh, has rules for uh, enchanting, um, so giving characters that have alchemy or other interests in creating magical items, it provides the, the mechanics and the framework for those. Um, and then it gets into uh, sort of additional material for Game Masters, some higher circle creatures, including uh, horrors, um, the and then the the masks um, system, which is something that we've been talking about for a while, and finally has has appeared in a book um, that I know a lot of people have been kind of interested in and excited about, and I think it it came out pretty well, and there are a lot of options there. Um, right, and that's a system for modifying creatures, so you can have basically a lot of variants of the same creature, right? Right. Yeah. Like for example, and and in the. Um, in the actual list of creatures that are in the companion, there are some examples that aren't necessarily called out as using the masks, but give ideas as to the sorts of things that you can do. Like there's three or four different versions of Espagra in there for different um, environments. Like there's a Swamp Espagra and uh, Badlands Espagra and things like that, that, that take a, sort of traditional earth on creature and slap a uh you know put a put a mask on it mod modify it to make it a little bit tougher or um you know things like that and i noticed that some of the masks also would kind of be could be a starting point for a story idea or an adventure like i know i can't remember the exact name but astrally con connected or it was something like that it had more i'm sorry not astral like it was like a more of a connection to one of the elemental planes Mm -hmm. um, so something like that, you could step step back a little bit and say, why is that the case, and what's the significance of that in my story? So, so these could be not just something that you fight and go kill, but it could be a prompt of how to start a, you know, it could be an idea of how to get a specific game going too. So those, right, that looks really cool. Yeah, and then and then you've got some some templates to. 
um, not just have like elemental aspects of which there are a bunch, um, but also um, of how to make how to sort of more or less make, say, a cadaver man version of a creature or more specific, like gen- or more generic sort of horror corruption or even, um, you know, skeletal or, or otherwise undead creatures. So a lot of ways to take existing creatures and just make them more, you know, the effects of, of horror taint or corruption or things like that. Because the the base the base rulebook creatures just aren't scary enough, I guess. You know? Yeah, <laughs> some of them. I mean, by well, by the time um, by the time you get into the material that is the focus of the companion, yeah. you are looking at at characters that, in general, are going to run into a traditional, you know, shadow right. mant or whatever, and not worry about it at all. And so. Um, you know, this gives you a, a, a starting point of, of making some modifications and like the um, and some of the, the masks are sort of designed to work together, like the leader and pack tactics masks. Um, you start putting those together on creatures and they get abilities that really can start challenging a group because they'll get bonuses when working together and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, now, I remember when the first edition Earth on Companion came out, I remember being a little reluctant to buy it because I thought, okay, the, the base book, I've got eight circles worth of stuff to do. That could be, that could seriously be like a decade of playing, possibly. I didn't know if I would ever get up to those circles, so I thought, why do I, why do I need this book? And then I started looking through it, and I realized that there was a lot of other stuff in there. There are a lot of optional rules and things like that. And I would mm-hmm. say this, the fourth edition book is far more packed with stuff than even the first edition was. Um, so what, what would you say if, if there's anybody that's a little reluctant as far as, well, I don't, you know, I don't need anything circle nine and up. What are some ways that they could use some of that high circle material in their game? Uh, you know, it, it, say if they're not yet at that point where the player characters that are, are at that circle, um, do you think this is something where you could kind of use that to still shape your game world, even if you're not actively playing at that level yet? Yeah, I mean, in addition to just having a general idea of what high circle adepts in fourth edition are capable of because of the way that talents and the selection of talents available and the changes that you run into with different disciplines, how those have kind of changed over the various editions, um, knowing what they are capable of in terms of the fourth edition way things are done um, can be helpful for developing, you know, even if you're just dealing with, you know, six circles, six, seven and so forth, um, you know, knowing because you can have opposition, like say a mastermind of a cult is a circle nine or, or 10 right. adept. Um, and while they would be a challenge, like one of them against a group of four or five circle six or seven characters, like, um, what happened in, um, shattered pattern. I was the, just that, thinking that we had that, that problem adventure. in my game. We, uh, this really, really tough guy just got swarmed by like six characters who had good dice rolls and he was on the floor in like round two. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so in it, so knowing what, what high, what higher circle adepts are capable of is useful to have. Um, even if your player characters aren't necessarily at that point and won't be at that point really soon, but having that information is useful. Um, the talent knacks is something that is available to adepts of all circles. Right. Um, it's not something that is limited just to, to high circle adepts. In fact, there is some really cool stuff that was introduced with the talent next um, in, in this book that uh, when Morgan, who's one of the, the main rules guys um, sort of presented them to me and I looked at them, it was one of those things that's like, this idea never occurred to me, but now that I see it in here, it's really cool. Um, there are some, they are, uh, spell casting knacks. Basically, we've we've taken to referring to them sort of in development speak as cantrips. Oh, yeah. Because what what they are basically is it's a knack, it's a spell casting knack that allows a magician to 
um, create a really basic effect that's tied to their discipline. And if you look at them, you'll see that they're similar to the secondary effects of, of you know, the, the sort of lower level spells. Like, for example, um, the Elementalist, uh, I think it's available at rank two or something like that, basically allows with a spellcasting test and a point of strain to inflict on a target the minus two armor that results from that normally results from the earth dart spell yeah um it doesn't cause any damage and it only lasts for a round um but basically for a point of strain and a simple spell casting test they can do that the 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 really neat thing about these and the part of it that that made me you know be kind of excited about that is that these are knacks that if the magician is weaving a thread that round they can use that knack as a simple action. So it's basically giving magicians the option or opportunity to do some minor stuff when they are other when they might be preparing a, a more advanced spell that requires a couple of threads. So they could like the the elementalist, for example, if he was going to be casting a more powerful damaging spell, the round before could use his I think it's called acid splash or something like that um, to reduce the target's physical armor so that when he hits them with the spell, they take more damage as a result. That's um, really cool because I one of the frustrations that I've seen spellcaster uh, players have is as important as they are to the game. There are sometimes long chunks of time where I'm weaving a thread throw some dice all right i'm gonna sit here while the the rest of everyone takes a long time playing one round and now okay now i'm gonna cast it so that kind of gives them something else that they can do while they're preparing that spell for the next round so that's right yeah that's a really cool idea yeah and and each of the magicians gets i think there's four of them i think they each get four or five that are kind of spaced out across the um you know the the different ranks based on their um, you know, based on, on their thing. Like the there's um, wizards, if they have spellcasting at rank two, can pick up um, what's called arcane accuracy. And the, the they cast it on an ally, and the target gains a plus two on their next attack test against physical defense until the end of the next round. Yeah. Um, you know, but it's basically like doing little things to enhance somewhat the support role that that magician characters have have been given as a little bit more of their focus in fourth edition um rather than i mean obviously once you start getting into excuse me higher circle spells you get into the the big you know start getting into the bigger guns and stuff but um a lot of the spells and and effects that magicians get both in in sort of as the base and with these knacks, um, kind of help enhance their their allies either by you know reducing their their enemies or you know buffs and debuffs basically. Yeah, and the spellcasting knacks. That's one particular example of a type of knack, but it's not limited to just spellcasters. There are knacks for all different kinds of. Talents. Oh yeah. So uh, all the normal kind of. You know, the way knacks were used before as far as it's sort of like an add-on. I guess we didn't say right up front exactly what knacks are for someone who's new. It's basically like an add-on ability that makes a talent more more powerful. And the spellcasting knacks are new, but you've got a wide range of things. So it could apply to any discipline in any circle. It, I'm sorry, does it start at first or do you have to be a couple circles up to get them? I couldn't remember. Well, the it's not necessarily tied to circle so much it's tied to so a, a knack is basically a, a a an enhanced use or a slightly different use of a talent um and in order to pick it up generally you need to have a certain minimum rank uh in the connected talent okay like, but are any of the uh, are there knacks that build off of talents that a first circle character would have Sometimes. Yes. Oh, there are. Okay. I could. Yeah. Like, I mean, for example, uh, just looking at the list, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine knacks just for the melee weapons talent. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm remembering wrong. I was thinking in, in first edition that you had to be, 
a little bit higher, like third or fourth before they come in. I, maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe. Well, gen- generally speaking, ra- uh, NACs don't start becoming available until you're, until you're usually have like rank three or four in the talent, okay. which generally means that you're not going to be picking them up until you get around to circle three or four. Okay. Uh, that must be what I was remembering. It was just, that just, just because your ranks point. tend to be roughly equivalent to your circle. Right. Right, that makes sense. And uh, in addition to the knacks, which I know there have been a lot of people asking when are when are knacks coming into fourth edition, that's really cool. But you've also got an optional rules section at the end that had some neat stuff in it. Um, yeah, there there was some really cool stuff there. Like the uh, I thought the most interesting one out of all that was the talent crisis, where if someone is sort of acting in a way that's contrary to their uh, contrary to what their discipline would normally do. Um, normally things like that would be more of just a role playing type element, but you've now mm-hmm. got a mechanic that, that can bring that into the rule system. Yeah. That's that, that's not actually new with fourth edition. Um, that was, that was in, I think it was originally introduced in, maybe it was in the adepts way. I think oh, it might've okay. first that shown up in there on my reading list. <laughs> Yeah, I can't um, believe how much of my collection I have actually not read yet. I, 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 uh, I try to read what I'm talking about on the show, but like <laughs> I, every once in a while, I'm just like I've, I, I've owned that since I was 25, but I just haven't read it yet. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm pretty sure it was something that was originally introduced in Adept's Way. It was one of those because I'm I don't think it was in the original Companion. Um, I think Adept's Way was where the the idea sort of first got put forward but yeah i was just basically bringing that into fourth edition as you know intentionally in there as a as as an optional rule because some people do like to use it um if they are going for a little bit of a mechanical interface with a more immersive role playing where they really want to make sure that the the character is you know dealing with the the real mystical mindset and and way of life that being an adept kind of requires but in some games doesn't necessarily receive that degree of attention yeah i i really uh i flipped through it and looked at the the enchanting system too and that looks that looks pretty cool because it's uh the basically if i remember right the process is you you learn like a pattern from the enchantment and then you gather mm-hmm. you gather up you might need certain ingredients or certain rare elements or whatever that now that could become the basis of a quest if you want or they could be simple things if not and then you you cha- cast the enchantment but that seems like that would be a good way as a jumping off point for a campaign also there could be some really rare type of items that you have to go discover or or go find somewhere for a particular type of enchantment um, yeah that that looks really fun yeah, there the the enchanting system. There's an interesting balance that sort of needs to be struck there because clearly, you know, there's a lot of relatively common magical stuff. Your your booster and healing potions, your your antidotes and whatnot, along with all of the sort of mundane magical items like your one size hats and dry boots and stuff like that. These are all items that are fairly readily available and therefore shouldn't be that difficult to create. Yeah. Um, but then you've also got the 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 problem of any time that you're dealing with with an enchantment system is how do you deal with the enchantment or creation of thread items? And there's a, a balancing act there because part of the theme, one of the themes of the game, if you choose to focus on it, is the exploration of the past and the discovery of, um, you know, of, of legendary items. And the whole way that that system works is a way to encourage exploration of the setting and storylines for your campaign where you are, you know, following and learning about the history of this item and the important events that it, uh, you know, were involved in its past and things like that. And giving characters the ability to easily make thread items can remove... Basically. Yeah, can yeah. can sort of cheapen that and 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 remove that as a as an option, 
And I mean, if that if people want to do that sort of thing in their game, that's fine. I am definitely, you know, uh, my philosophy coming up with this stuff is to come up with systems that work and promote the, you know, try and promote the the themes and ideas that that I find most useful in the game. But everybody's needs are different, and if they want to change something or handle it a little bit differently, you know, like the 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 discussion that comes up on forums a lot frequently is, well, you know, my, you know, with the importance of history and items becoming magical and more powerful and stuff as they are used in significant deeds, my character is a warrior and wants to have the sword that he was given by his father be his, you know be the the item that becomes powerful and grows with him but the way that magic items work there really isn't any way for that to happen right you just take the sword your father gave you and throw it away in the dumpster and yeah go, go get a different and, one <laughs> and and i and i from a from a the enchanting rules in the companion don't address that basically that that the that the enchanting rules are you are setting out to deliberately from scratch make a particular item yeah. That there, it does not overcome the spontaneous creation and stuff like that. And maybe in one of the the later, you know, one of sort of the the magic supplements that we've got in the planning stages right now might have a little. Actually, might not. Might have a little section that we'll put in there about here's a way that you might handle um, having, you know, items that your that your group wants you know wants to develop into thread items and whatnot um yeah because i mean because there's a need for it and and you know more to say you know if you want to do this here's a way to handle it more power to you yeah and that's i never really thought about that but you're right that's something that's has been the concept of that's been unearthed on for a long time but it's just never mm-hmm. something that sort of made its way into the rules system of how you know how you do yeah, that in the, game the, terms the the general problem with that largely is one of time like time scale within the game oh yeah uh, is that un, you know if the item was not deliberately created as a thread item to begin with and if you're talking about the sort of spontaneous creation that people are talking about where oh i'm using my you know my family you know the the sword that was given to me by my father before he was killed and you know, I want that to be the magic weapon that grows with me through my career. You know, you're talking about a spontaneous creation and the degree of magic that's involved and the time that's involved for it to become an, uh, you know, a, a legendary magical item is generally beyond the scope of a typical campaign right. or a typical adventurer's career. Right. I mean, not entirely. Obviously, there are some items where, you know, they are as powerful as they were because they were used over the course of an adventurer's career. But that's small comfort when you're, you know, when it's your character that you're talking about. And it's like, oh, it won't be anything good for 10 years of actual in-game play. And Until that's your character just, dies from old age. And then it's, <laughs> you know. Yeah. No, I mean, that, there's a, there's a there's there's a place for it. I have some thoughts, and you know, it it may be um, it may be something to to address as a as a section or as an option in a in a magic source book. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of other projects that you've got coming up, I know the uh, Questers book is getting fairly close, right? It, it looks like yes. that's looks like that's pretty close to done. Other than I guess you're still waiting on art. Is that correct? Yeah, basically at this point we are just waiting on art. Um, we're, you know, continuing to sort of page through the book and try and catch as many typos and stuff while we can before it gets locked down to to go to press. Um, but uh, that it, that's I mean, the the pre art draft um, went out to those who backed the Kickstarter a couple of weeks back. Um, we've gotten good feedback from them, as always, and fixed the things that they've caught and clarified a couple of places where the the rules as originally written were a little bit muddy or unclear, like an example where there was not a duration for an effect given, you know, little stuff like that, that always, always get picked up because when we're writing it, we know what we're talking about and don't always, 
<laughs> don't always miss the things that are obvious, um, you know, that seem obvious to us. Yeah, I, I may have run into that a couple times while running Earthdawn games. It made sense to me when I wrote the adventure, and everybody's like, why why is why is that guy doing that? That makes no sense. Oh, well, it made sense in my head. You know? <laughs> it's, it's it's like why you why it's very, very hard to actually proofread your own stuff. Oh, yeah. Because you just go over it, and you've gone over it so many times that it comes to the point that your brain just fills in what it expects to see. Yeah. Even if that's not what's actually there. <laughs> so getting as many fresh pairs of eyes on it as possible to pick up on things you know, it's, it's very helpful, but yeah, we're waiting on art to be delivered. We're expecting probably the final pieces to be coming in next week as we record this. Um, which means that the PDF will, should be available a little bit later this or a little bit later in July. Okay. Um, and it'll be going to press as soon as we can get it off to the printer and hopefully knock on wood. Um, we actually will have, uh, physical copies of the book at Gen Con, which is in four and a half weeks. Okay, great. Yeah, that that's going to be. I think that's one area that of Earthdawn that has always seemed really cool. The the questers and the passions. It's always seemed really cool, but it's the it's one of those things that just never kind of got fleshed out as much as it felt like it deserved. I mean, it's yeah, you know, it's um, there. Obviously, are so many other directions you can go with Earth Dawn. So sure, but uh, it just always felt like something that had some potential and didn't quite wasn't quite as central of a piece of the game as it could have been. And it's it's nice to see that getting the full treatment now. Yeah, when I took over and decided, you know, that I was gonna, you know, when I was gonna be line developer and decide what was going on, on the list of books beyond the initial core rules that I wanted to see done was a Questor's book. Yeah. Um, you know, Trevar, back when I was sort of initially planning out the 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 Kickstarter campaign and looking at what we were gonna do, we had manuscripts that had been developed for third edition for Trevar and Elven Nations. Um and then the Player's Guide, Game Master's Guide, and Companion were sort of givens. Um, but then basically, like, as the first real full-blown original um, thing from was was going to be a Questor's book. And I'm really happy with it. Um, the in-character, the, the in sort of in-setting fiction chapters... I think are all really strong and I'm, I'm really happy with the work that the freelancers did um, in terms of that. Uh, I think the mechanic system that we came up with um, is a really nice bit of design that um, actually opened, ended up opening up uh, some other avenues that we're going to be exploring in some future books as well. Um, oh, really? So, what, uh, what kind of? Um, I don't know if it's something you can talk about yet, but which? Yeah, which sure. parts of this would uh, yes. would go into those other? Like which products and what parts of it? I'm I'm just kind of curious to. Yeah, to so because I've talked about this on in the the developer blog, um, and it was discussed a little bit on the uh, the the forums. Uh, on the FASA Games forums. But basically, the the idea of the Questor's power is that it works very similar to dur- uh, durability, to um, versatility. Yeah. Um, so basically, that that a Questor gets, a, for, I mean, it's not, it, they're called devotions in the rules, but for sake of ease, I'm just going to refer to them as talents. They basically get that Questor ability that has a rank, and as they advance that rank, it opens them up to pick up powers from a list that is specific to each quest or to each uh, passion um, that they then basically pick up as sub abilities and then can increase. So, you know, the, they, a, a quest who is, has a quest rank four will have four powers from the list of powers available to that passion that they will have as, as special abilities. And the higher that they advance their rank in Questor, the more powers that they'll be able to to pick up. And uh, I I looked through the book briefly. I haven't had a chance to get really very far into it. But if I if I read it correctly and remember right, in order to power those, it's sort of you get a, a point that works a little bit like karma, and you mm-hmm. replenish that by doing things that are uh, that are 
doing the things that are related to what that passion is about. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, okay. pretty much. In in prior editions, in, in the previous incarnation of Questor Powers, they, by performing acts in service of their patron, they would earn what are called devotion points, which were just sort of a running tally that limited how high your Questor rank could be. And it followed the same sort of like you didn't spend the devotion points to increase your rank as a questor, but your total points would determine how powerful of a questor you could be. Yeah. Um, and then all of your pa- like each questor only had like three powers or so, but they were all tied, used that same questor rank. So as you became more devoted, you would have multiple abilities that would get more powerful as, as you advanced. Um, what we did in fourth edition was that. Um, instead of having a sort of running number of devotion points, it was just this thing that you tallied that limited it. We made it work similar to a, a karma pool that questors get devotion points, which is a pool that you can spend points from that to add dice to tests when you are using your questor powers. Um, but also in some cases, in order to restrict or limit the um, ability of questors to use some of the more powerful abilities, they actually are required to spend a devotion point to activate them, uh, kind of bringing back in the old karma required ability that we eliminated really for adepts in, in fourth edition. Um, but unlike adepts, where their karma gets refilled every day, they basically they wake up, they do their karma ritual, and they get their karma pool for the day. Questors only earn devotion points by performing acts, but there's no limit. Aside from having a maximum they can have at any one time, there's no limit to how many they can earn per day. So a questor could, you know, do a bunch of stuff, do a bunch of things to earn devotion points, spend those points, do a bunch more stuff to earn devotion points, spend those, and just, you know, if they are using their, it's possible that using their powers in service of their passion, they can effectively earn back the points that they are spending to activate those powers. And so there's kind of a feedback loop that that can happen there that basically drives them to do more stuff in service of their passion. Right. So that's what's nice about that is as they might start out kind of doing that stuff for a mechanical reason of this is going to help me in the game because I need those points. But in order to do it, it's driving them deeper into the concept of that character. So it's right. it's, it's taking the mechanic and, and, and bringing it back into focusing on the role playing and they get a mechanical uh, benefit from doing that. That's that's yeah. what I think is really cool about it. I, I, I like the idea because I've seen this in a, in a lot of games that have been developed here in the past you know couple of decades is mechanics that are intended to help reinforce or reward um, you know people doing what they should be doing in the game right um, not and but not punishing them. I'm not really in general fond of punitive mechanics um because that can lead to a uh you know kind of a a negative feedback in a particular group if a if a gm is you know gonna basically roll out a mechanic that's gonna give people negative consequences for you know not playing as they as the gm thinks they should that it starts to get into some shaky territory for me personally yeah um but That'll then I'm also a, a big proponent of the of the of the session zero and communication and making sure that everybody is on the same page in terms of uh, you know how it all works out and and whatnot. So, right. yeah. Well, I have to ask since we're on the the subject of the passions and questers, what's your favorite passion? If you were going to be a quester, what uh, kind of quester would you be? <sighs> Boy. We know you'd be a Tuscrang. I, I know that's <laughs> that. That has long been that has long been established. <laughs> um, I I'm just kind of running through them in my head. I honestly don't know that I would be able to sufficiently devote myself to a single passion to be a questor. Honestly, it does seem like it'd be a difficult 
path to you talk about in the book some it's a difficult path to sometimes reconcile with with well you got two things you got the time requirements and the focus to be a quester and an adept you could possibly Mm -hmm. be both but it's kind of splitting you in both directions and then you've also got what if you want to be a quester of someone whose ideals are opposite your discipline so you've got complications there as well um so you do talk about that some in the book about uh, basically how to reconcile some of that and some of the some of the things that you should take into account if you want to play a quester character you you go into yeah. some of that I mean we had we had kind of been been focusing on the the mechanical aspect of things a little bit because that's the easiest to to talk about but there are sort of at the beginning of the game information chapter the last chapter in the questor's book there's you know several pages devoted largely to you know, here are the things to to think about, and and some some you know some some ideas to consider because it there is a lot of um, perhaps in some respects even more than adepts because of the the mechanical interactions um, of the the role playing aspects that are necessary for a you know for being a questor, um, and you know again different people can can kind of take that to different extremes, but yeah, I, there's there is a, a good chunk of of that in there as well. Um, but actually, I want to kind of circle back a little bit to to the the question that <laughs> kicked this off, where you were talking about how the the questors stuff could kind of show up in in later, yeah, um, in later products, and that is basically the idea that um, that kind of basic mechanic of they get an ability talent power devotion whatever that then basically determines how much how far along a particular path they are and using that to make like revised versions of some of the previous what were might have been disciplines in previous editions um that haven't yet shown up in fourth edition like for example um the horror stalker yeah um, where as a as a standalone discipline, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And it always kind of had some issues with like they've got some cool tricks, but there were some other things that kind of had to be in there. But the restrictions somewhat of the talent structure meant that they really didn't get all of the stuff they needed until a little bit later in their progression. And that made their early stuff a little bit awkward and, you know, things like that. What this does is if we basically say, okay, rather than being a specific discipline, being a horror stalker is, I think we're kind of referring to them as paths now, but we, I initially kind of pitched this as, as mystery cults using a term that I picked up from Ars Magica. Um, but basically that it is no longer a specific discipline that somebody can become a horror stalker and they'll get this horror stalker ability that then has access to all of the neat horror stalker powers and tricks that we want to hang on to and try to have those be somewhat discipline agnostic so they can be useful for anybody that wishes to follow that path. But it basically ends up as an add on like tree spur thing to their normal progression. So it's like they can minor in it. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Rather than needing to go to all of the extent of, like picking up a second discipline and everything that goes along with that. Right. Because when you're looking at something like Horror Stalker, for example, a lot of people would pick that up as a second discipline, but it because of the way, because of the talents that they had, it would tend to only be picked up by certain disciplines that would have the advantage of, oh, well, I've already got melee weapons. I've already got, you know, steel thought. I've already got like these three or four talents that they have in their early circle so that I can advance through those really quickly to start getting to some of the more cool stuff. And now it's just simply there's more cool stuff. But yeah, I that, really like that idea. Yeah. I mean, it was one of those things that like when Morgan and I started talking about it and looking at it as an option, you know, the the possibilities. I mean, some stuff will still be presented as traditional disciplines, but some of the other stuff um Horror Stalker, I've mentioned. Liberator is another one that that could serve to... Not all of these have been nailed down, but Liberator is another one. I initially kind of thought about that as as being 
like a specialist questor of Locust because of its connection specifically to freedom and whatnot. Um, that didn't end up coming out, at least as a form in the, the Questor's book. Um, the light bearers w- actually seem to work really, really well under this new system. Um, That's what I, I was actually just about to ask you that, because it, what you're talking about sort of reminded me of the light bearers from mm-hmm. from first edition, that it was it was sort of an add on thing. It added some new things, but it wasn't like the entire focus of your whole character. So right. yeah, it sounded like a similar kind of idea, but this sounds like you would take that idea and really, really take that farther. The the light bearers were another thing that it was cool, but it just sort of seemed like it was thrown in there and never really kind of fully developed. Yeah, I mean there there were there were a couple of, um, I it was one of those things that that I think was created and it's it's a good idea and i think that as the game development progressed through the setting and whatnot there wasn't ever anything that seemed particularly appropriate to bring them in on yeah and i suspect that had things not shuttered with the first edition in, in at the end of last century in, in 99 or whatever that in some of the stuff post second theron war yeah. Um, might have seen them become a little bit more prominent because there there were a bunch of things that were in those books as just, you know, oh, here's something that's kind of a little cool and whatnot that that were kind of seated there, not necessarily knowing in advance what they were going to be used for three or four years down the line. Right. But then going to a later book and saying, oh, here's something that we mentioned before that we can bring in here that would make a lot of sense. And it gives the illusion of there having been a lot more specific planning than there was. Right. <laughs> That's what I was really surprised Which is about. fine. When we had Lou Prosperi on, I'm, my, my main thing I was wondering was, okay, all this stuff is so tied together. You must have sat down and had this complete, total master plan of everything in Bar Save. And he was like, no, we, we were winging a lot of stuff. We were <laughs> putting, you know, they, they obviously used as, as a lot of forethought, but they didn't always know exactly where they were going. But they did it in such a way that they kind of dropped those hints knowing they were going to pick that up later. And yeah, I, um, I can definitely see where they were doing some of those things that would have grown more had, you know, had there been another another five years of books there or something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And and as we are now sort of getting into the some of the things that we're looking at, because Elven Nations is still in development and so some of the things that are going to be going into that and some of the things that we're talking about that are going to be in the iopos book which is the first book planned post kickstarter fulfillment and um the europa book which is the sort of the 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 one of the next big setting books that i'm going to be sort of majorly focused on uh, you know in the midst of other stuff that's going on um we're trying to do those because trying to kind of lay those seeds in place so that, you know, another year or two down the road, you know, we can have things ready to go and try and drop things in that might not necessarily tie in specifically to the next big event, but are there for people to, you know, to use um, and whatnot. I'm really excited to hear about the Europa book because I when we were doing the series on the Serpent River, there were two cities that really jumped out at me, feeling like I need more of this. One was Trevar, and the other one was Europa. So, <laughs> having a full blown well, we've got Trevar now, and having a full a full product on Europa would be that would be really cool. I could see running a campaign there definitely. Yeah, and and it's going to be Europa with a little bit of info on. Um, on the the Eras coast and and um, sort of the Eras Sea and whatnot, and that may bring in um, some of the sort of more ocean related that doesn't have a whole lot of room in, in the typical bar save campaign. Um, but yeah, Europa largely got like its three or four pages in Serpent River and nothing largely because of where it's located it never really got involved in any of the the major events kind of following that yeah 
but every single thing in that book about Europa was really interesting. We, yeah, I was surprised when we did that episode. I thought, oh, there's a couple pages here. We'll probably talk about it for five minutes. And we ended up doing a whole episode, almost an entire episode on Europa. Just everything there was really cool. So it seems like that would be a great starting point for a, for doing an entire book. I'm sure that yeah. is spawning a lot of ideas of where you can I mean, go with it. Yeah, one of those, one of those, one of the strengths of those early Earth Dawn books is how, in not a whole lot of space, the the writers were really good at evoking the, sort of the the potential depth of something you know, of, of something being there. And right. I think that was one of the things that, that really drew people in and, and certainly on my part, at least, you know, wanted to learn more about the setting. Um, because with, you know, we're, we're like the serpent river book. There is so much that is covered there. There's not really a lot of depth, but there is enough detail about the different areas and enough interesting bits that are given that it feels like there is a, a lot more, it it gives the the feeling of a much more lived in world than you know than than you would otherwise get in a 128 page you know soft right. cover source book the thing i really like about it too is because of the geography of how the serpent river just stretches out all over barsave it's not like it's a little niche book you can only use if you happen to be playing over there it's yeah. anywhere, anywhere you're playing, you can probably work in something from that book. Um, that was one of the reasons that I wanted to do it early on when we first started the podcast. So that's uh yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite books. Yeah. It's, it's, it gives a really nice kind of broad overview of the, you know, of the entire province and how things kind of tie into each other and, and are connected. Um, we may very well at, at some point, you know, now that we're sort of in the the post war, post second war era here in fourth edition, might end up not necessarily doing like a oh hey or here's our version of the Serpent River with just some tweaks to the old text and whatnot, but actually revisiting um, some of the uh, some of the stuff that's been going on that would and be, how that might have changed. Yeah, that would be that would be really interesting. That's something that from time to time when doing the podcast episodes, I kind of. I, you know, we're focusing mostly on first edition, although we're doing Trevar next. But mm -hmm. a lot of times, I'll read something and it's talking about the Therans, and then I'll go, okay, well, obviously they're still a factor in fourth, but they're not exactly, you know, some of the dynamics have changed, and and I'll have to kind of go, okay, well, how would you do this in fourth? It, you can definitely use all that older material, but sometimes I wonder, sort of like what what would the update of that be and how would this or that dynamic have changed given that the balance yeah. of power has shifted? It's, 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 it's awkward. And I've talked about this elsewhere, the, the sort of balancing act that I wanted to approach here with fourth edition. And that is to, you know, try and get new material out rather than just have all of the books that we're coming out with be, oh, hey, and here is our fourth edition version of Thrall, and here is our fourth edition version of Serpent River, and here is our fourth edition version of The Name Giver's Book. And just basically, you know, rehashing all of this material that fans of the game have sometimes two or three copies of across different editions. Um and, you know, so but but at the same time, knowing that there is um, material that the newer fans, people who are just coming into it in, in fourth edition, perhaps because there are some of them phenomenally, um, you know, don't have this older stuff that, that's accessible. But by the same token, it's, you know, with with online publishing the pdfs of this stuff is still available yeah um and so you know a, a lot of what i tried to do in the setting material in the core books was focus on let's get the important stuff sort of like the really high points in here let's highlight what's maybe different from what people who are familiar with the previous version highlight what's different and how things might have changed post-war and tend to point people towards the the PDFs, which, you know, 
are are available there, both from our store and and uh, and Drive Through RPG. Um, but by the same token, that the that doesn't necessarily do much for the group that doesn't really go online. Although that's becoming less and less of a factor these days. Um, so you know, it's it's tough because people want to know like what's changed, what's up, and you know, trying to strike a good balance between a mix of updating older material that's useful and providing new stuff so that somebody who has been collecting since, you know, the very earliest days don't look at a new book and go, oh, there's nothing in here for me because it's all just rehashing stuff that I've got already. Yeah. Um, you know, it's more based, I mean, because that's what I've been doing and I don't want to, you know, I want to make books that I would find useful, that I would find interesting, that have stuff in there that that I like. Um, right. Or, you know, or that, in, you know, in general. So, yeah. Well, uh, what, what other, uh, I know there's a lot going on at FASA right now. Other, other things I saw, uh, I saw Demon World just had a successful Kickstarter. Um, so what, what other kind of yes. just general FASA announcements do For you the have? Book. I know, uh, Gen Con's coming up also. The, yeah. So we've got Gen Con in four and a half weeks. I've got, actually two adventures that I need to write for that because this is actually this Gen Con coming up is the 25th anniversary of the original release of Earthdawn. Yeah. Um, and so I'm doing a sort of two part anniversary adventure that harkens back to and draws inspiration from the very original um, Care Tardim adventure from the old promo flyers. Yeah. Um, and so I've got to write that and have that all geared up. And when that's done, it probably it won't be released until after Gen Con, but I'm hoping to, to actually have it written up more officially and released, uh, at some point. Um, we've got the 1879 has a couple of books that are, that are in the queue. Um, the, uh, second chapter of the, um, Acadian Connection, which is the sort of adventure adventure trilogy that's being released, uh, is I actually saw the the cover of that last week, um, and so that's in the process. We we will we should definitely have the companion. We will probably have the questors both in actual print for the show, um, along with print versions of uh, chapters two, three, and four of the Legends of Bar Save. Um, adventure series that uh, that Kyle and Mike and um, Carl have been writing up. Um, the chapter two has been available in PDF for a while, but we haven't because it came out after last year's Gen Con. We haven't bothered to do a print run yet, but we will be doing that. Um, but three and four, we're just waiting for for uh, layout to finish on those and, and get some some art dropped in, and those will be ready. Um, we've got a more extensive and useful character dossier that's going to be like a 32-page character sheet um, that that is going to be available. Um, the Germans actually just released their version, and we're kind of doing uh, our, our own. Um, so we've got 1879. We've got the Earth Dawn stuff. Um, a lot of stuff going on. I know also you had mentioned, I, I, I don't know if there's an official announcement of specific products, but I know on Twitter here and there, you've talked about some Earth nonfiction coming up. Uh, what's oh, the yeah. So that. Yeah. Um, we've got the 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 first draft of a trilogy that I have read through and I actually need to finish up a couple of notes on that and get it back to the author uh, for revisions um the first book we don't have a release date yet but the first book is currently called novice and uh it's written by russell zimmerman who is uh wrote one of the chapters in the quest doors book um and has written some fiction for uh shadow run um as well uh the jimmy kincaid stories are his uh if if any of the listeners have have read any of the the 
Shadowrun fiction. Um, he's done some freelancing and stuff for for uh, Catalyst for Shadowrun. Um, so it's it, but there's a a proposed trilogy. Novice is the first one. The second is is Journeyman, and the third working title is is Warden. Um, and hoping that's that'll be out as soon as we can sort of get them out. We haven't announced dates or anything yet just because everything else has has been going on that's taken a little bit longer to get down get through the pipeline than originally planned um just because of of some issues but uh i really like it um i think the characters in it are phenomenal and uh i'm really looking forward to getting that out for for people to be able to read yeah i was really excited to hear about things i remember i i asked you about Hey, you know, I just got done reading The Longing Ring, and I thought, you know, I wonder if there's more fiction coming, and I asked you, and at the time, uh, you were sort of like, well, you know, it would be cool, but I don't know, you know, it wasn't, I don't, I don't think you had anything finalized here, and then it was like a few months later, I heard that, uh, you, you sort of like, like we're dangling that on Twitter for like a month, <laughs> and it was, I was like, there's something coming, I don't know what it is, but... <laughs> Yeah, I was I was happy to hear that it was some more earth on fiction because I think that I think that's going to be really nice. Yeah, it's I you know Rusty is is great and it's been a, a pleasure working with him and uh, I've known him um, semi professionally even before we started you know working together you know for for a little while before that but he is a big fan of Earth Dawn um, and so is is really immersed in the setting. Uh, which makes sense for a guy who's also big into Shadowrun, and uh, his fiction is pretty well regarded, and and uh, he was willing to, um, you know, come up with what he did, and and the story kind of ties into the overall arc of what's going on in terms of the the future developments in the setting. So, it's cool. There was that. Um did he kind of have a story idea and then you talked to him about some ideas and he worked them in or yes. was it, was he already before he wrote it on like before he started it, did he know where you were going or was it something that you kind of merged in the editing process? It, it was, it was, it was a combination of both. Like he sort of had an idea of the, 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 the character, like the, the storyline of the first novel was something that he sort of largely had on his own. And he was like, do you have any thoughts on how we can sort of tie some things together here? And I went, well, how about, you know, this is what we're looking at. Maybe we can tie this in together. And he went, okay. And he kind of, kind of worked that in, in the, in the first book, it is very much in the background and in a couple of hints and like, basically there's a sort of epilogue to the story that basically will have people go, Oh, this is kind of a big deal. Um, although it doesn't, you know, it explains a little bit why what's going on in the book is going on, but it doesn't directly tie in. Yeah. Except in the sense that it ties into who our focus sort of is in terms of the, the big bad of the setting currently. I wonder who that could be. <laughs> I think I know. Well, you know. It's not a big secret, is it? It's it's not a big secret, no. It, <laughs> I mean, we've got the Iobos book that's coming out, you know, hopefully this year. Um, but yeah, it's tied into the Denerastus and, and whatnot. And, and uh, it's cool. But again, like, it, that doesn't factor in, like, the first book is largely just introducing the characters and putting putting sort of the main character through her paces and introducing some of her allies and whatnot and then what will end up developing to be a bit more significant in the later books as she gets more um more experienced because actually in the first book the main character is not even an adept through you know through almost all of it well, that, that'll be fun to see because, you know, you always start out, you're al already an adept when you start playing the game. So that kind of like, well, I guess you see that in the longing ring, though. You see, you see Jerrell become an adept, but it'll that be That happens kinda, kind of earlier, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's more like basically the first book is, here is the adventure that makes the main character, that ends up making the main character an adept. And the actual initiation ascendance whatever term you want to use for it i think is like after 
the main plot has been resolved. It's like, oh, and by the way, here's this thing, and oh, I'm an adept. And a lot of things that are referenced and whatnot in the book like take on a whole lot of I'm just I want this book to be out so people can read it and I can actually talk about it in more detail. Yeah. You know, I keep running into that with with Rachel. I, there's always something I'm like you have to read this, you have to watch this, you have to play that game because I want to talk to you about it. Like I, I just played um the indie game Firewatch and Oh yeah, I've I heard picked about that up on the Steam Summer Sale and I'm like you got to play this cuz I want to talk to you about it but I can't ruin it, but play it now and she's not playing it it's driving me crazy. <laughs> Also, the uh, the final couple seasons, we watched Halton Catch Fire together, and then she stopped, okay. and I watched two seasons, and I'm like, I want to talk to you about it, the ending, but you have, you know, 20 episodes you need to watch. So I know the feeling. I get it. Yeah, I, I am trying to get caught up on some of my shows now that the, the biggest crunch in terms of getting the companion and quest doors done is behind me. I actually end up with a little bit more free time to catch shows once in a while. And, um, they just released the second season of, um, Dirk gently on Hulu. Oh, I'm a Netflix guy. So I'm, it, yeah, well, I have both Netflix and Hulu, but, um, I, I'm at a point in my life where if it's not on Netflix, I don't have the energy to figure out how to access it. I'm just, <laughs> I'm well on Netflix. We just had the second season of Luke Cage come out. I just watched breaking bad again and, and mm. call it good, you know? <laughs> um, no, there's just, there's a lot of good TV on. I just wish I had time to, to watch more of it. That's that's where I am with video games right now with the Steam Summer Sale. I was telling Rachel, it's sort of like during the Summer Sale, you feel like someone picked your pocket and then put you through sleep deprivation torture, and then you're looking forward to them doing it again next year. <laughs> that's, that's where so, I am at the moment. Uh, along those lines, and to actually maybe tie this at least peripherally into, into FASA, um, the Battletech computer yes. game i haven't played it's, it yet but that looks amazing it is it is really good i had actually backed it when they kickstarted it mm-hmm. um so so i had i had picked it up and it's it's really good my computer struggles a little bit to run it but um it's it's really good like it is of all of the battle tech type computer games that there have been over the years and there have been many of them it is the one that in my mind closest resembles the original tabletop experience yeah that looked really good i saw it and uh, you know sadly i've never actually really played battletech my my brother back uh, back in 93 94 my brother had the just the base set of battletech we didn't have any of the expansions or source books or anything and so we just kind of put the little paper mat out and he blew me up and that was kind of it. I could tell there was something really cool there, but I never got deep enough into it to see what you could do with it. But it looked like a really promising universe. Yeah, I, I never really played it a whole lot, but I did kind of follow it through the um, through the fiction. Yeah. And stuff. Um you know, uh, so that that's kind of where I get into. It. I never never was as big into that setting as I was Shadowrun and and later Earthdawn, but it was one that I kind of followed. Um, and I mean, I liked the earlier, you know, like the Mech Warrior games and and whatnot that were a little bit more sort of traditional shootery, um, pilot sim type things. But but this one is a, is a lot more traditional strategy, you know, turn based. And I'm just I, I really enjoy it. And it is actually easily digestible in bite sized chunks because you have a mission. And then when the mission is over, it is a lot easier to um, like shut it down and, and put it away for the night. Unlike Stellaris, which does not have any good break point. And so I lose far too much sleep. Like, <laughs> I'll just do this little thing. Oh, and this is now in the middle of. So I'll wait for that to end. It's Stellaris is is probably my latest gaming addiction oh yeah i i just recently got off of the kerbal space program uh, i spent more time playing that game than i spent making the video game that i made <laughs> and i'm like okay I, at some point i need to get back to like doing things with my life so i haven't played it for a while yeah 
Well, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, yeah. Lots of really cool stuff coming up. Everybody check out Happy, the yeah. um, the uh, Earth on Companion on yep. FastaGames.com and also look for look for some uh, upcoming products also coming out. Yeah, yeah. Um, the while the PDF is immediately available, um, the the option to pre-order print versions is um, available through the web store. Um, keep an eye out um, on both the Facet Games website, the forums. Uh, follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Metaxas M A T A X E S. Um, you will actually be able to tell which of the in-character chapters in Questors that I wrote when it comes out. Um, the um, I'm also uh, there's Facet Games on Facebook and like I'm I am easily findable in a lot of places. So uh, we've got our Discord channel and you know I, I you know we're we are around and about and we will you know we try to get news about uh, releases out to as many places as possible. But actually specifically following us is a is a great way to make sure you're up on the latest news. And it seems like if you if you tweet anything with the Earth on hashtag. Josh responds within an average of about 30 seconds. I don't know how well, that happens. <laughs> so, well, the, so I have a, um, so on my desktop, I have a custom, I, I use TweetDeck. Yeah. And so I've got a custom frame that actually just searches for hashtag Earthon, and basically you did something like automatically that. notifies me when when that pops up. So if I'm at home and I see those, then I will generally reply pretty quickly. Um, it tends to pop up in my regular Twitter feed on my phone as well, just because I tend to to look for those pretty pretty well. But yeah, I, you know, I mean, I talk about other stuff and and whatnot, but I'm always happy to be followed by. Um, be followed by fans and answer questions and stuff like that. Well, I promised the 30 second response time. So we're going to hold you to that. Okay. <laughs> I'm interested in, in hearing when you have a, a little bit more time to, uh, to, to go through it, your, uh, your, your thoughts on, especially the, um, the, the in character section on Questors. Yeah. I, uh, I, I kind of just thumb through it to get an idea of the overview of what's in the book. I read uh, some bits and pieces of some of the in-character stuff, and I, I really liked the quality was great, and I liked that so much of the book was dedicated to that. It's not like just a just a, uh, a big rule book. It's It's got a lot of rule kind of stuff, but it's got a lot of just source material kind of things too so it looks yeah. like a really nice balance and it'll i think that's going to really be a nice addition to earth on all right well i think that'll just about do it uh, i appreciate you being on josh and uh hey, thank you we will see everybody next time thank you